Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of Fully Scored. Why so exciting? Well, once again we've got some brilliant guests joining for a chat about Salvation Army brass banding, faith, history and the quiz that never fails to perplex, Band Mastermind, plus much, much more. For our analysis, we're once again joined by renowned Heaton specialist Paul Hindmarsh to look at what could be considered the greatest festival march of all time. Praise. But before we delve into the history and music of Wilfred Heaton, it's time to introduce our guest for today's interview. I was delighted that Brett Tolcher, recently appointed Chicago staff bandmaster, agreed to chat with me a few weeks ago, and this is what he had to say. Well, thank you, Brett, so much for joining us on Fully Scored. I believe that quite recently you've got back from a tour to Panama with the Chicago Staff Band. First of all, how was that trip? It was a really fantastic trip. It was the first time that I viewed God as a chiropractor, actually, which sounds kind of weird, right? Um, But what was really interesting is when we got down there, it wasn't a typical kind of staff band tour. Uh, we got there, and the first thing we did was uh, taught at a music school. And it was their ITMA, uh, ITMA, the Territorial Music Arts Institute. And, man, we had about maybe 100, 150 kids there. Um, a lot of them spoke, everybody spoke Spanish. A few of them spoke English. And at first, one of my concerns was that it was going to be uh, quite a barrier to do it, uh, despite being doing Duolingo for three months or so. As it turns out, that didn't really help out all that much for me. But, man, oh, man, the Lord did some really neat things there um, with us developing relationships. Uh, There are some great musicians down in the Latin American North Territory, and there was about eight to ten countries actually at this camp. Um, So we spent a week uh, teaching music, uh, teaching bass guitar, guitar, keyboard. Uh, They have kind of marching liras. And so we worked with them on that. And then later on, we had about two thirds of the staff band, then the rest of the other third came down near the end and jumped in. And then we uh, played a concert for the staff, or for the kids out there. And what was really interesting is uh, oftentimes when the staff band comes to town, you hear the staff band and you see the staff band. And then maybe afterwards you get a chance to meet some, some of the band members. This was really one of the first times, I think, for our band that we were able to really develop relationships. And then all of a sudden you see, my gosh, this this person that you've been sitting by this whole time in this particular class, whether it's guitar or band, like they can really play. And like they already knew that we had a relationship with them. So it was just a really magical kind of time. We did the camp and then uh, we did three concerts. One was kind of out by uh, the ocean uh, where there's a big walk area and had a lot of people visiting. We did a terminal concert, which was really neat. Uh, a big transportation terminal with buses and trains. And there are literally thousands of people going by. We did it at the evening rush hour. And it was just really neat to see people not know that something like this was going to happen. And so hearing just simple tunes like Amazing Grace and doing some fun stuff like Dance Like David. It was just kind of a neat way for many people to stop and maybe the hustle bustle of their lives or their day and just take some time and maybe hear or think about something different. So yeah, it was, all I'd say, it was a really uh, nice trip. It was a really a missional kind of trip. We're also able to help 
clean up a camp after all the delegates went home. So it sounds like an amazing trip, um, and actually probably one of your first major tours, being the Chicago staff bandmaster, having only taken over the role recently from Dr. Harold Bergmeier. When were you appointed to be the staff bandmaster? It's it's really only been for about a little over a year now. So I started in the band of, I started leading the band in January of 2022. So just a little while now. And how did you feel taking over in that role? Was it something that you'd always wanted since being a young boy, or was it a bit of a surprise, perhaps? Um, you know, when people ask me, "What do you want to do in five to ten years?" I often struggle with that answer. And I think for me, you know, I think in a lot in analogies. And my always next goal is just to take the next step where God wants me to take it. So whether that's through, you know, starting out on cornet for a year. And then, you know, learning to play the trombone and then going through school and doing various jobs. Uh, you know, maybe somebody would tell me, like, get your head up and see where you want to go. But it's been really neat to see where God's taken me with my my efforts to just take the next step uh, where I think God wants me to go. And so at the core, at the Norwich Corps where I soldier, I was the bandmaster there for a little while. And honestly, I never envisioned myself being a bandmaster, but... Um, I love music. Uh, I, I really love people and I love the Lord. And so it's just kind of a, a really neat opportunity to come into a role like that with being a leader of a group or a bandmaster. And so coming into the staff band, uh, yeah, it was a it was a little bit of a surprise for sure. Um, but it was one that I know that uh, God has placed me here for this time. And through him, I get confidence. But, you know, seeing the, you know, some of the legendary bandmasters come through, not only the Chicago staff band, but other bandmasters. Uh, the bar is set high, and that's a really neat and cool thing. And so I, I hope I can keep it that high and maybe even raise it a little bit, Lord willingly. Absolutely, and we wish you the best with that in the future. Uh, now, previously, uh, before becoming staff bandmaster, you were a trombonist and principal trombone in the band. What are some of your highlights from your time as a player in the Chicago Staff Band? I mean, they're they're the maybe the ones that people might guess. You know, the the big events, uh, whether it's our staff band Sounds of the Seasons concert, which is our big annual concert, uh, might be the the ISB one hundred and twenty over with you in the United Kingdom. Uh, we had a, a great time in our Western territory in the USA with the bands getting together or the Canadian staff band 50th anniversary. Uh, but when I think of the moments for me personally, uh, there are two really moments that jump out for me. One is when I was in university, I sat second chair to Ron Schultz. And after I graduated, uh, the bandmaster at the time, my uncle Bill Himes, uh, appointed me to do the principal role. And later I found out uh, that Ron actually asked Bill if he could make that happen. And it was a really neat lesson for me to learn because the rehearsal that had happened, uh, Ron Schultz came up to me and said, you know, Brett, you're going to be moving up to, you're going to be taking my seat essentially. And just know that like, I am totally supportive of this happening. I'm proud of you and um, you have my full support. And that really set the tone for, you know, when this happens for me, that's how I'd like to do it. And that's one. The other really uh, meaningful one is on a trip on one of our ministry weekends when 
uh, Bill was leading the band. On our way back, his longtime secretary, Janie Halt, uh, was uh, fighting a really tough battle with cancer. And we were able to stop at her apartment building, which was only like two or four apartments. And the band stood outside her apartment on the front lawn and played and sang some hymns. Uh, we were able to greet her. Um, and shortly after then, uh, her spirit was able to escape her body and be with the Lord. And uh, that was just a really meaningful time for me and for our band. Thank you for sharing those moments there. And perhaps, well, there's a lot less time to choose from, and I'm sure that your recent tour to Panama would be up there. But have you got any highlights so far as being the staff bandmaster? Yeah, so Matt, in our Panama tour, uh, there was, we had different electives and different tracks that people could go into. So we had our brass track, and Tom Hanton, who's our principal euphonium player and deputy bandmaster, he led that band and did an amazing job. And in this band, in our horn section, we had two little boys, Jesus and Antoine. And I think they're probably about 10 years old each. And in between them was our solo horn player, uh, Morgan Marinelli. And her goal for this camp was to, these kids were very uh, beginners, and just to get them to be able to play a C scale. So throughout the you know week or so that we're working, she's uh, doing a great job with them. They are 10 years old, and so there's a picture of uh, one of them with their hood over their face and their mouthpiece on the fabric. Um, but about halfway through camp, I sat down with one of their local leaders at their church and come to find out uh, that these boys maybe haven't had, had the best uh, luck and the best draw in cards in life. And they spent more time really on the streets than in their own home. And then uh, because of some behavioral problems, they actually like had to be transferred to different schools. And honestly, you would never guess when you saw these uh, little boys and our band, they, they were fine. They were your average little boys. While this woman was telling me this, by the way, she was just in tears and it wasn't because uh, she was sad. She was just so proud of their church that uh, they could make this thing possible, but they raised money about $50 for these per kid to be able to go to this music school that we're at. And uh, she told me that they were just having a fantastic time. They were learning a lot. Um, they were developing a relationship with, with people around them, despite uh, language barriers. And then when the band got done with the camp, we played these concerts. And once you know uh, who pops up at you know the terminal concert, as uh, one of these little boys and they're kind enough to give me a bracelet and just to know that we had an impact on somebody like these two boys not know where it's going to go but completely know that the lord will use what happened then uh, to further his plans for them that's absolutely amazing thank you for sharing that so what are your hopes for the band going forwards into the future I think my hopes are for the band moving along into the future is that we just continue to be open uh, to see what God has in store for us. Uh, as far as our weekends, you know, sometimes there's a typical format to that where we come in on Saturday and do a festival or a concert program in the evening, and then a church service or two on Sunday. Um, but I think for our band, it's to continue to be innovative in terms of who we interact with and how we interact with them in terms of our programming, the music that we're playing, and also uh, in terms of 
the people that we're encouraging, especially young people, and uh, to see young people get excited about uh, music and worshiping and uh, through the brass band medium, uh, maybe even being a part of this, uh, you know, in a few years down the road. Fantastic. And actually, I think my next question links on quite nicely. One of the things that I've noticed about the Chicago Staff Band that they do really, really well is the social media side of things. Is that something that you're consciously trying to put effort into and improve as a band? Yes, we are always trying to put effort and improve uh, this kind of thing, just to be able to connect with people. And what we found, actually, that's uh, pretty neat and not surprising, surprising is every individual has a different perception of what is good uh, social media for us. And so lately we've kind of taken a, a team approach to putting stuff up and what that looks like. And that's been really beneficial for us because you get different viewpoints, uh, whether the literal viewpoint of being in a band versus being outside the band, but also connecting with people. Fantastic. That's great to hear that insight and uh, look forward to seeing much more on social media in the future from you. Now, we've talked quite a bit about the Chicago Staff Band, but as well as being the bandmaster there, you're also the Music and Creative Arts Secretary for the USA Central Territory. What areas does that role cover? It incorporates anything that we can really think of, it seems like, in terms of the arts. Uh, so music and all that different expression, that's enough to keep you know a bunch of people busy all the time. Uh, but we handle the music stuff, whether it's... Uh, contemporary music, praise bands, anything vocal, anything uh, brass band. Uh, we're expanding our divisions. We're starting to see more and more like a gospel choir, uh, a Hispanic choir. Uh, we also see a lot of, uh, we handle our drama, we handle dance, and we're, those are areas that we're still, you know, more on the infant stages of lifting up. But even our Bill Booth Theater Company that's been going on for quite a while there, uh, has had a legacy in their ministry. So yeah, the music, the dance, the drama. Uh, we also work somewhat in visual art spaces. So quite a few different areas. Fantastic. And geographically, uh, the USA Central Territory is quite a large area. What, uh, just for us international uh, listeners, what area does that cover? Uh, basically, it, in, it would incorporate what we call as like the Midwest area except for Ohio, actually. Um, they get to be in the Eastern Territory, uh, but generally it's the Dakotas, it's your Kansas, your Missouri, uh, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, Minnesota. As I list off the states, I inevitably am sure Indiana that I'm missing one. That's how it always seems to work <laughs> for me. But yeah, generally it's that uh, kind of North Central Midwest area of the country. Perhaps the next question might be quite challenging, but could you give us a brief snapshot into what your daily routine is, or perhaps even lack of routine and what it looks like? It's a wonderful job. It's a wonderful opportunity that we have here. And some days look alike, and some days and weeks and months and years look very different from each other. And so there are some consistent things that we do, uh, whether it's some of the events that we do with our Central Music Institute, our new Resonate Worship Arts Conservatory, our Territorial Youth Sections, which is our youth band, our youth chorus, our Territorial uh, Worship Collective, which is our focus on contemporary worship and praise bands. Uh, but often our days can look from anything, especially mine, from 
talking with core officers about what's going well for them, uh, what's frustrating them, uh, meeting with people around here to see what are we hearing, what's in common, meeting with our team as a whole, individuals, uh, seeing people grow, working with our divisional music directors and the people that are really closer to where the action is happening in our local cores. So it's a really fun environment. Uh, some days are like, but at the same time, it feels like no day is the same. Great. Thank you for that insight there. Now, of course, you haven't always been uh, the Music and Creative Arts Secretary. You weren't born into the role. So could I ask you a little bit about what other roles you've had and what uh, you did to prepare you for this role? What I did to prepare for this role, and I feel like just <laughs> honestly listen to God's leading. And, you know, it was an interesting pathway for me. Uh, I went to the DePaul School of Music, which is in the north side of Chicago. It just so happened that Kitty Corner from our concert hall at DePaul was a hospital called the Children's Memorial Hospital. And my dad had done fundraising for over 30 years and so knew that. And so it came to a point in my studies where I didn't want to do the the orchestral audition route and you know possibly have to live somewhere that I wasn't interested in and really felt the need to somewhat, as they say, get your act together. And so I did an internship at this hospital that didn't pay any money. I didn't offer any kind of credit for my studies or anything. And that was for six months. And there's no promise of any kind of job. And I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed what I learned. I really enjoyed the people that I worked with and all the different kinds of people that I worked with. And at the end of that six months, fortunately, the people that were managing me took me out to lunch and shared that they were actually going to create a job for me. And that was a really unplanned but really special gift. And so after graduating my undergraduate degree, I went and uh, worked there for about four or five years, and I would do fundraising for them. And it was a really great opportunity to, opportunity to work for the hospital that actually helped me out. When I was born in the Chicago suburbs, I was immediately brought to this hospital, actually. So it was a neat way to give back. And then after I got done with uh, at Lurie Children's, where the, the name changed, actually, I came to work for the Salvation Army here at our territorial headquarters. And it was a split job between our trade department, our supplies and purchasing department, and music. And later that role transitioned all the way to our music and creative arts department. And then a few years after that, uh, again, I told you my goal is to see what the next step is for me. And so after spending about four or five years with the Salvation Army, I went back to my alma mater, DePaul University, and I fundraised uh, for them. And that was a really neat special opportunity uh, because they really put an emphasis on first generation college students. And it's really neat to see the impact of uh, generations of families if one person can go to college. And so through that, I was able to learn a lot, was able to do, hopefully make a, a positive change in the world. And then that's when I also worked on my uh, MBA, my Master's of Business Administration and Management. And then at that point, uh, again, you leave it with God to see what he has in store for you. And now I'm doing this wonderful role. And it's really neat to see my musical abilities 
uh, maybe not so much my fundraising, although we do a good amount of that too, but the relationship development side and also what I happen to learn from my academic studies and some of these uh, business administration programs like marketing and HR and finances, it all comes together. And so it's really neat to see just the plan that uh, the Lord had for me. And it's amazing to see the path that the Lord's taking you on there. Perhaps some are unexpected, um, but it's great to see. And thank you for sharing that with us. So clearly, you have a real passion for Salvation Army music making. Was there a particular moment in your life or a particular person that really piqued that interest in the first place when you were a young boy? I think at first, it's um, honestly, it's just part of what you did at our core. I I was born into a local Chicago suburb core called the Oak Brook Terrace or OBT core. And at the rightful age of whether it was eight or 10 or whatever it was, uh, you went and you did beginners. And Bill Hines was my beginners class teacher, which is cool to have my uncle doing it. And about a year after doing that, I had no interest in playing the cornet. Uh, maybe as my dad also plays and my brother play the cornet quite well, but I wanted to do something different. And so having people, I mentioned Ron Schultz, he was actually my first uh, trombone teacher. But then we moved to Michigan and I was kind of dumped in the youth band there. And it was a fairly capable youth band there, very capable actually. And I was struggling to get through that music. And there was a lady named Karen McLean uh, that really helped me along and was the person that pointed through the music and made it so I could get through it. And not only did she help me get through it, but then she taught me how to get through it on my own. And that really gave me that initial kind of confidence that I think I needed to think, hey, I can do this. So I'd say probably that was the first really spark that maybe there's something there is when um, this person really, Karen, really guided me through that and to the point where I could do it on my own. And now that's what I get to do for other people and teach them how to be their own best teachers. It's amazing to see that come full circle and uh, realise how important those moments are and those people in our lives that influence us. Now, a final question for you before we move on to some more quirky quickfire questions. I believe you've got a very exciting chapter in your life coming up and your family is going to be expanding soon. But yeah, we're expecting our first child and it's going to be a baby boy and the due date is april 17th and so we are excited and terrified all at the same time our <laughs> our newish minivan is packed and ready to go and so we're very excited for this next chapter yes we're also terrified a little bit um but we have we're excited to count on people that love us and support us um it's been great seeing the generosity of people and just supporting us through things like baby showers and that kind of thing yeah, life's a bit, life's about to get a bit different and maybe a, a bit more wild. Absolutely. And we wish you the best as you navigate through that. And also we'll be praying for you and your family. Thank you. This takes us on to perhaps the lighter side of the podcast. And I've got some quirky quickfire questions for you now. Some of them are fairly sensible and some of them I hope you'll have never been asked before and probably not again. So the first of these quickfire questions is, have you got a favorite Salvation Army composer? It always seems to rotate for me, but right now I'd have to say Kenneth Downey, really just because of his the color that he gets, the chords, 
being a trombone player, uh, orchestral trombone player, you always look at balance and who's got what. And just seeing the works that he does, it's magnificent. Mm, a harmonic genius. Yeah. And even more specifically, have you got a favorite Salvation Army band piece? Can I give you three or four? Oh, go for it. Let's have a top top highlights. <laughs> yeah, and they're all, they're all a bit different for me. Uh, hmm. Eric Ball's Resurgum, just because of the, the message and the weight behind that kind of thing. Uh, the Call of the Righteous by Les Condon, just because, I mean, I don't know how what gets you more excited about your faith and where we want to go, and, and it's really motivational kind of piece. I also love Ken Downey's King of Heaven, just kind of that idea of the Benjamin Britten's you know, young person's guide to the orchestra and having just the big hymns in front and in the end of the piece too, and giving every section some chances. And then maybe a bit of a different kind of piece uh, that our band uses a lot is Bill Himes' Amazing Grace. Again, it's not an eight minute kind of thing, but there's not a time that we've played it where somebody like hasn't been touched from it. All amazing music. What's the best restaurant that you've ever visited? the best restaurant there's a kind of a quirky place in chicago called carnival that has um it's really interesting artwork inside but uh, a rotating menu of food and it's not one particular like a uh, style of food it's not italian it's not indian it's not uh, mediterranean but i think three or four times a year with the seasons they rotate this menu and it's a really unique place to go sounds delicious now, perhaps it could be the same thing, but what is the best thing about living in Chicago? It's the best thing and the worst thing, but it is the food, and it is both good for you and awful for you, uh, but that that's a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful thing, and then also just the all the really fun stuff that's about to happen, especially during summertime in Chicago with all the music festivals and the orchestras that are going on. Yeah, Chicago's a, a fun place to be. Excellent. Now, here's a little bit more of one of those weird questions I was warning you about. If you had to rename your local airport after a band piece, what would you call it? Well, Chicago's airport is called O'Hare Airport, or the initials are O-R-D. But if you're anything like me, I don't like my airport adventure to be long. I like it to be quick. And so I think of a, a quick march that I like, and I think of Paul Drury's Jubilee Fabulous. Thank you for that answer. Have you got a favorite book of the Bible? That also rotates for me. Right now, it'd be the book of, the book of Daniel. Uh, in a nautical emergency, what musical instrument do you think would make the best buoyancy aid? A piano. Maybe? Mm, okay. A hollowed out piano? I'm not sure how much they, they uh, are buoyant, but we'll... <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds like a good idea. Um, penultimate question. Have you ever dabbled in martial arts? Yes, I have. Excellent. And <laughs> final question. What was the greatest pizza ever to touch your lips? And can you describe it in the style of Shakespeare? What's the tough one? Because Chicago has very good pizza. You know, my Midwestern accent really gives way to Shakespeare. So uh, you're welcome for this answer. Uh, <laughs> on the north side of Chicago in the Lincoln Park neighborhood awaits this wonderful deep dish pizza that has not an average crust, but a caramelized cheese crust. Amazing. I think Shakespeare would be proud. Very, very good indeed. And thank you for entering into the spirit.
So that brings us on to Band Manager 2023. For those that haven't heard previous episodes where we've featured this segment, Brett will now be able to choose two players to nominate for our fully scored Band Manager 2023 band. Players are chosen for a variety of reasons, from sentimentality to admiration, plus many more reasons. Once a seat's filled, it comes off the table for selection, so each episode becomes a little bit more challenging. So, Brett, who would your two nominations for the band be, and why? I have to thank your recent guests for setting this up really well, and just hearing the heart that they have. Can't help but for our, I believe, our final solo cornet uh, chair... To go with the longtime principal cornet of the Chicago staff band, uh, Peggy Thomas. Peggy has been special to me and a lot of people. Um, not to mention, as many of us will know, that she was the first woman to be in a staff band. Her ability to play a melody is a very rare thing. And I, I soldier at the same core that Peggy goes to. And still, every time she plays a melody, it's a lesson in how to play a melody brilliant choice and then i got a first horn player for us i want to nominate uh my brother in christ ken roman and uh some of you may know him ken's been around for a year or two in fact this is his 57th consecutive year in the staff band wow and so to see him to see somebody invested in a ministry like that uh for for that many years and again continuing to go on you think of all the chapters of life that that included maybe with getting married and having kids uh his wonderful wife jill uh, has been battling some medical issues some very serious medical issues for a while now and to see can be a loving and supportive husband um, but still have his commitment of being in the staff band and i know that we need him but as many of us will know this, these staff bands aren't just about playing music at all, but uh, they're about glorifying God, but they're also about just the fellowship and the community and the support that we have. So I like to think also Ken needs us. And he's been on our band board for a while, does our graphic design, and yeah, plays in our horn section and has done that for 57 years strong so far. Fantastic. Thank you so much for those two choices. Brilliant choices. Our solo cornet bench was full, but you've made such a compelling argument there for Peggy, and I'd agree that we'll add a we'll add a fifth seat we can squeeze her in. <laughs> Excellent stuff. Well, thank you so much, Brett, for your time in the interview. It's been brilliant to talk to you and uh, really do appreciate you giving up your time uh, to chat and share some of those insights. And I hope that we'll hear from you again in the future and look forward to seeing uh, your developing work with the Chicago Staff Band. Thanks. Appreciate what you do. Brett, thank you so much for giving up your time at a particularly busy time to share with me those stories and your own testimony. We wish you all the best for you and your now extended family since we last spoke. We'll hear from Brett again shortly as he plays Band Mastermind. Now it's time for our analysis. Cast your minds back to the lockdown. Not only was Covid an epidemic, but also World Cups of Salvation Army marches also seemed to be equally as infectious. Almost inevitably, in these there would be two festival marches finding themselves head-to-head in any final. The iconic Condon celebration and the inimitable Heaton's praise which is what we're going to be looking at today and who better to be joined by to look into the score 
than Paul Hindmarsh. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining us once again on Fully Scored. I know that many people have uh, really enjoyed listening to your analysis of Wilfred Heaton's Just As I Am all the way back in episode 14, and I hope that they will continue to enjoy it in the future as well. Today we're going to be speaking about a contrasting piece of Heaton's music, but equally as evocative and revered, the Festival March Praise. Being published only two years after Just As I Am, this comes early still in Heaton's writing, Perhaps before we talk about the music, you could give us a little bit more context into Heaton's life and upbringing to help us better understand the music. Wilfred wrote it when he was round about 18, so just before Just As I Am. Uh, And at that time, he was a bandsman. Uh, I think he sat second man down in the Salvation Army band of the Sheffield number four Salvation Army Corps, as it was called then. Um, And when he was about 16, he became the core pianist. He was very talented, uh, started to write music when he was in his early teens. He had his first piece of music published by the Salvation Army when he was just 14, and he'd written that when he was 12. You can see he was a very talented young man. And according to his cousin, uh, who I spoke to a number of years ago, she was the same age as Wilfred, um, and she was at the Sunday school and then a, a young Salvationist at this little core at the top of um, up the hill in Sheffield. They had a core piano and she called it a tatty old piano. But Wilfred could really make it talk, she said. And he sort of put all the variations by ear. So he was very good at improvising. There's victory for me. Oh, the blessed Lord. I've touched my finger on the golden pen. All these, Wilfred's sister told me, Hilda, told me that um, they used to sing. And all those ended up in band pieces of Wilfred's, having started off as improvisations on the piano. And there was another one they used to sing a lot, which was Praise, Oh, Praise Him. And it's my assumption that out of Praise, Oh, Praise Him, the chorus, came the March Praise. Absolutely. And many have commented before how this March Praise uh, was very, very advanced compared to Heaton's contemporaries writing for Brass Band at the time. What would some of the influences be on Heaton that uh, influenced him to write in this way? Well, he was a very studious young man. Um, the children would all be outside in the streets playing, but not Wilfred. He'd be behind the shop. The family had a little shop and he would be upstairs practising his piano or writing his music. And I think in the I've described it as sort of tooling up, as it were, to make himself uh, into a composer because his ambition was to write music, not just for the Salvation Army, but to write music in general. So he was, as I say, very talented pianist, had piano lessons, cornet lessons, theory lessons, including some from by correspondence with George Marshall, Salvation Army bandmaster. And when he was 18, instead of a gold watch, which was the usual heat tradition, I think, um, it would have a gold watch, he asked for a selection of scores, music scores, by William Walton. Now, Walton was the, 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 the coming young composer at that time in wider symphonic music. His symphony had been just been um, published, but he was really became obsessed by that sort of jazzy, up-tempo style of William Walton, who himself was only in his 30s then. And also he became rather enthusiastic, I might, might say, about jazz, which uh, was not something I think that uh, was... Look, was was looked upon with any enthusiasm by the Salvation Army editors in London, particularly uh, Bramwell Coles, who I think then was the 
editor-in-chief. Uh, he wanted to encourage his young composers, and he was very good at nurturing composers, Bramwell Coles, and Wilfred mentioned this. Uh, he wanted to encourage them, and I'm going to quote this from a book on him, for the sacred charge of conveying thoughts to the people and winning men for God. That was William Booth's statement, and that was what Bramwell Coles's uh, desire was for young Salvation Army musicians. So where do you think that Heaton would go to explore the jazz idiom? Uh, obviously, uh, back in when he was growing up, there wouldn't be things like Spotify or Apple Music to go and launch into it. Where did he first come into contact and uh, that interest in jazz bloom from? I don't have any uh, concrete knowledge of this. It's not something that... Um... Hilda Heaton, when I spoke to her at great length, she now passed away, but uh, some years ago now, uh, she was telling us, telling me about uh, how they were brought up. But I think more than anything else, that interest in up-tempo syncopation came via uh, the music of William Walton, which he clearly became obsessed by. I mean, I've examined uh, in some detail most of the faster music that Heaton wrote when he was a young man, right from the age of 17 through to his, his around 30. And there is so much William Walton buried inside. So he was, he'd obviously poured over these scores endlessly. And of course, a lot of uh, Walton's music, especially things like Facade, they're very jazzy. And when Heaton wrote the March Praise, it was very jazzy. I think it was to the um, Swedish conductor, Tony Hansen. Wilfred said once, oh, it was a lot jazzier when I first wrote it, but I had to tone it down. And that's how it became published as we know it now. Uh, Bramwell Coles wrote back in 1925, he was interviewed by um, the a Toronto Daily Star, and he said, jazz doesn't do any good at all. Good music must have a moral purpose. And I'm assuming by that he considered jazz and its associations with nightclubs and dancing and dance bands to be somewhat immoral and lacking a sort of any real spiritual value. So I'm assuming when praise was submitted to uh, the editorial department in London, uh, which I think was probably around about 1946 or, or could even have been before the war, I don't know, uh, it was sent back for revision. And over the years, there have been numerous recordings and performances of the March Praise, and it's still a staple of the ISB Saturday Night programme. And I don't know about you, but every time I play it or hear it, something new tends to come to the ear. What was the reception like when the March was first performed? It was a huge hit in 1949 when it was published. But I think it, as I just mentioned in the previous answer, getting to that point was... Not the easiest. Wilfred used to describe his relationship with the editorial department in London as rather a bumpy ride because he was quite adventurous and they were quite conservative and uh, there wasn't always a meeting of minds. The final proofing sessions in 1948 were undertaken by the Rose Hill Assurance Society Band and it was conducted by Albert Jakeway, Colonel Jakeway. And according to the band's principal cornet, who was then Derek Smith, who's still with us in his 90s. He was 18 then. Uh, the band went on to record it and include it in their festival repertoire. Whether the march actually met with Albert Jakeway's complete approval, I'm not at all sure because, uh, and I think anyone who's conducted this will have read his remarks on the score. And it says, with this effort, 
Deputy Bandmaster Wilfred Heaton of Sheffield Park Corps makes his debut in the festival series Brass Band Journal. At the outset, it should be made clear that this is no ordinary march, and it will need quite a different approach from that of the usual type written in march form. Judging by its reception, when featured on Rosehill Band programmes, we predict, he says, that the composition will become a popular number with our better class bands. And of course, it proved so. Something I know that you've researched a lot in depth about praise is a varying tempi of the different performances from the very first uh, composition uh, to now what we consider to be a more normal tempo for the piece. Could you just give us some insight into the sort of thoughts uh, surrounding the various tempo you've heard? Well, it's not so much what I've heard, it's what I think Wilfred would want. Uh, there's a story back in 1948 about the Rose Hill Band when they went to Sheffield Citadel with Albert Jakeway conducting. And Sunday evening, Wilfred went down the hill from Park Court down to the Citadel to hear the band play Praise, because he thought it would be on. And uh, Albert Jakeway asked him to conduct it. And I have this from Derek Smith, that they were all surprised how slow it was. Because if you listen to Jakeway's recording from the old 78, uh, which will show the tempo that it started out at. So you can see that's quite bright. It's uh, rather stiff in, in, and rather military. Not very jazzy, you wouldn't say. There's not much swagger to it because it's quite quick and it's very hard then to, to get the back of the beat feel with, while maintaining a martial step. But if you take it slower, you give a chance for the tempo to make more um, impact and to give it a, a sense of swagger. Wilfred, when he conducted it, 112. So it's really quite slow. It's the tempo that a, a Salvation Army uh, band would march at. And in more recent years, the staff band under Stephen Cobb, that's the tempo they've been taking it. And it really does make a difference. Many regard praise, and I know that you've said as well, as one of the greatest marches in the Salvation Army's repertoire. What do you think gives it that status and makes it so special? It's audacious in a way. It's and that jazziness gives it a gives it real character, which is most unusual for a, a Salvation Army march at the time. Maybe I should illustrate this actually. That sort of jazzy character. <laughs> It really does swing, doesn't it? And and the the bass the bass lilts from um, doesn't do five one boom 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 boom, but it does um, one three boom 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 boom, just like a stride bass as you would on the keyboard. Um, and yet beneath that jazzy sound, that the harmony itself comes straight out of the hymn book. This is the magic of what Heaton was doing. He was embedding the jazz sound into the, writing it in 
to the music. Let me just play you the harmonies of that um, uh, little section. It's letter B, I think, in the, in the full score. But he takes the up-tempo version and it's on the back of the beat. It's so far on the back of the beat that actually the resolution of all the suspensions is a bar late. So it, 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 so it goes... And again... So he's writing in back of the beat jazz and, and uh, as it were, jazz style. And then in the middle of that, you've got the euphonians and baritones with their which is adding to that sort of off-kilter sound. It's really, really clever. But the basis of it is very simple hymn tune music. What can you tell us about the tonality of the piece? Uh, well, that's interesting. Again, it's all interesting, isn't it? I do find this fascinating. It starts in the minor key. And yet it's a very joyful march. It's rather sombre. Which is a modal, really. It's a modal, the flattened seventh there. Uh, and it's a sort of, in concert pitch, F minor. F minor is perhaps one of the darkest keys. Heaton doesn't make it mournful. The main tune sounds more like a folk song. And I'm thinking there that the comparison may be with... Eric Ball's marches, uh, uh, Torchbearer or Fight, particularly Fight On, where you get a modal tune at, at, at the uh, to start with. And Heaton starts in a modal tune. I have an image image in my head of Salvation Army band marching in the distance, and you hear this sound. Maybe you maybe you can't see the band, and it's round the corner, and it comes closer and closer. It's not a minor key because it's mournful. It's minor key because it's a long way away, and then it comes closer gradually closer but then after the passage I've just illustrated that jazzy passage the music opens out and we hear minor transferred to major and we have that wonderful chorus uh, praise oh praise him it's very simple So it's really that, that that is our full. The band is right up close at that point. We've trans, the sound has transferred from minor to major, and I think that that tonality really is one of the magic uh, elements for me of the march. Now be a good time to talk about that trio section, unpack the music there a little bit more. I always thought, right through, and I first heard this march when I was about 10, and until 10 or so years ago, I thought this was Wilfred Heaton's little ditty. But actually, Ray Stebbin Allen put me onto this, that actually the tune in the, in the trio is derived from what was originally a music hall song from the 19th century called Cheer, Boys, Cheer. 
it goes something like this. Cheer, boys, cheer, no more if idle sorrow. Courage true shall bear us on our way. And that was by Henry Russell, who was an Englishman. Uh, he wrote it in 1850, and he was very uh, popular songsmith of the era. Uh, he wrote Life on the Ocean Wave. That's his most famous song. It's very likely that Wilfred Heaton derived his own paraphrased version from, as it were, a sanctified version of Cheer Boys Cheer. That version was published in 1926, sometime after the original, um, and appeared in various hymn books. And it was very popular as a Sunday school tune. The text began joy, 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 rather than cheer, boys, cheer. So it fits very, very much into the, the March praise. And the text of that is by a Thomas Plant, who was an American evangelist songwriter, some of whose material actually appeared in the musical Salvationist around the turn of the 20th century. So from joy, joy, joy to Heaton's Bum, bum, bee, da, da, ba, 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 da. Not that too far a step, I don't think. And did you notice there that he, the main difference between Heaton's version and Joy, 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 is it the phrase endings? Joy, 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 with joy my heart is ringing. Stops. But Heaton turns it upside down. With joy my heart is ringing. And that moves us always forward. Big feature in Heaton's music, it's progressive. He's always leading your ear onwards, looking for the next bar. Uh, but when it comes to the final phrase, after the, um, the euphonium jaunty bit. Turns the phrase the other way. In a way, he's confirming the ending by just upping the blues jazzy content. Fantastic. It's a really, really interesting detail there. Just a further question. I've heard it said about Wagner before that uh, everyone's music post-Wagner has influenced him, either trying to write like him or trying consciously to write not like him. Do you think the same could be said in the brass band idiom about Wilfred Heaton's music, particularly from this piece onwards, that either composers were influenced by it or influenced by trying not to be like it? Or do you think that influence and impact on writers came later on? I think it probably came later, you know, uh, perhaps more recently when uh, Wilfred Heaton was an older man in his 60s and 70s, when his music was really becoming admired and people were wondering what they were, that they'd been missing for so long. I mean, pieces, when Takata came out and Celestial Prospect and the other pieces in the 60s and 70s, um, I think there are some specific indications of influence I doubt whether Les Condon's March Celebration would sound as it does if praise hadn't been written. Um, there again, and, and on the more devotional side of things, I do know, for example, that Ray Stedman Allen and particularly Kenneth Downey have both expressed the influence of Wilfred Heaton's music on the way their 
the meditative side of what they write. Um, there's a little piece by Ray Stebbin Allen called Prelude on Randolph, which isn't terribly well known, but it's a most beautiful setting. It has that same sort of objective character, very contrapuntal, very intricate, that some of Heaton's, uh, just as I am, has. I think just as I am is probably as influential on the way the Salvation Army meditation sounds as praise does on some of the sort of livelier up-tempo marches. And what is your personal connection with Heaton? Clearly you've got a, a real interest and, as you've mentioned before, you've met him several times. We first met in the BBC studios in Manchester, now pulled down, um, because he came across for a recording session of Partita. That was in 1992. I was intrigued by him. He's a very small man, um, very penetrating eyes, very quiet demeanour. And then as soon as we started, he was as sharp as a tack. Every little detail. Uh, I, I was on my best my best producing behaviour on that occasion because I realised that, that, that he wouldn't miss a trick. I was conducting Besties of the Barn Band at that time, so I was able to get hold of some of his unpublished music and perform it with the band. I'm not sure Wilfred was very pleased about that, but <laughs> he did forgive me later, I think. Um, so, And then we kept in touch. And a little while before he died... Uh, I said, well, you know, Wilfred, I am going to write your biography. Oh, do you have to, was his expression. And I said, yes, I do. Um, and so I've, after he died in, in 2000, um, I started making preparations for that. But simultaneously to that, the family asked me if I'd come and have a look at all the manuscripts. And there was a pile sitting on the table and we went through them. And I was astonished at what I found. Um, There's an orchestral version of Partita, which is earlier an orchestral suite, a little suite for recorder and piano, which became uh, various incarnations later on, um, some songs, piano pieces, partita as a piano sonata, probably more music unpublished than actually had been published in his lifetime. Um, but it's been a thrill and it's been a joy and so fulfilling to enable his music to be more widely appreciated for the quality and originality that it has. And of course, also, I've, I have written that biography. In fact, as soon as we finish this conversation, I should be back onto it. Um, I've got some of the major pieces still to write, write up and then get the whole thing fettled for, I hope, uh, a publication later in the year. Well, I won't take up too much more of your time then, as it sounds <laughs> like you need to get older. But thank you so much, Paul, for joining us again on Fully Scored and sharing your time, but also your expertise, uh, specifically around praise, but also Heaton's life in general. I know I've certainly found out more about a march that I thought I knew well, uh, but it turns out must just be scratching the surface. But thank you so much <laughs> for joining us once again. Absolute pleasure, Matthew. Thanks. Thank you, Paul, for your time and expertise enlightening our understanding of that work of genius.
Welcome to Arid Island. Our guest today for Arid Island is Alexis Dill. Well, Alexis, thank you so much for joining us on Arid Island Albums. It's great to have you on Fully Scored. First of all, are you keeping well? I am. I am, Matthew. Thanks for asking. Fantastic. <laughs> now, you are the Divisional Music Director for the Western Pennsylvania Division. How long have you been in that role for? So it's been almost a year, come June, it will be a whole year that I've been in this position. So I guess 11 months is the most accurate. Amazing. And are you enjoying it so far? I am. Yeah, I, I really am enjoying this job. I feel that a lot of my previous life experiences have prepared me for what this job calls for. So I'm very blessed to have this position. Brilliant. And what was it that got you interested in Salvation Army music making to where you are now today with your role? I was brought up in it. So I'm originally from Toronto um, and the Salvation Army, I was sort of born into it. Uh, my parents were going to a Salvation Army Corps, Yorkminster Citadel, woot woot. Uh, and my <laughs> sister, she's older than me. So naturally she started going to you know, beginner brass band classes and singing company rehearsals. And I thought, hey, my older sister's doing it. Why not me? Um, so I tagged along and eventually got roped in too. And I've just been going ever since, you know. So I grew up um, as a teenager, kept going. Um, more opportunities arose, you know, like going to the States became a thing. So I was exposed to the New York staff band and going to Star Lake Music Camp. And we just made connections and... You know, one thing led to another. I ended up uh, doing my master's in Michigan, um, which is a different territory. I don't know how it is in uh, the UK, but so I'm from Canada. That's a different territory. Um, New York staff band is in the Eastern Territory and then the Central Territory is where Michigan is. <laughs> and yeah, so I did my master's there and um, now I'm here back in the Eastern Territory and I get to you know pour into kids same way I was poured into throughout my entire life, which is great. Great, and it's great to hear your passion about it. Um, I'm sure it's different every single day, but could you give us a little snapshot into what a standard day uh, in your working life might be like? Yeah, okay, a standard day. How do I answer that? Um, right now, we can talk about yesterday. So right now, um, I'm mostly just um, answering emails and trying to plan for the summer. So the summer is a very busy time for um, music and arts departments in the Salvation Army. We're really preparing for music camps and it's a great opportunity because kids don't have school. So we can really, you know, sort of claim them and teach them music over the summer. Brilliant. That sounds fantastic and uh, great to see your excitement and hopefully that... Uh transfers onto the kids as well, which is great to see. So that brings us on to the all-important question for Arid Island. If you were stuck on an arid and deserted island and could only take one album with you, what would that album be and why? I did have to do some research for this. So I'm going to start by saying entire albums 
I don't really listen to. I think we live in the day and age where, you know, you can go onto Spotify and listen from, from this album and this album just to choose one song, you know, and sort of pick and choose. Um, yeah, so I had to do a lot of digging and a lot of thinking <laughs> if I had one album, right? So I first thought about brass banding. Like that is my go-to sometimes because it's just what I'm used to. But then I thought about like all the colors that are available, you know, like with an orchestra. And like, I didn't want to bring like a pop album or, you know, like a disco album, you know, cause they're kind of just like vanilla, right? In my opinion. Um, so I then thought about like my favorite composers. So I thought about like Rachmaninoff, you know, Rimsky-Korsakov, because they you, like use the brass really well. Um, and then I thought about, like just yesterday, I thought about this just yesterday. I thought about um, movies. Mm. I love movies. And like, I love the idea of storytelling with music. So I thought about like the different soundtracks that I really like. And of course, I went to John Williams, and then I realized that I'm kind of a wimp. So if I was all alone on an arid island, some of the stuff that John Williams writes is kind of freaky, and I don't want to be spooked when I'm on this island. So <laughs> I thought about kids' movies, <laughs> and um, uh, an all-time favorite um, movie and soundtrack that I have listened to like countless times is How to Train Your Dragon by John Powell. So, nice. yeah, and actually my dream, I went into trumpet performance and that was kind of my dream to sort of play for movie soundtracks. Um, as a trumpet performance major, you know, something's happened and I went down the education route. So, yeah, so it's How to Train Your Dragon, the album, the soundtrack by John Powell. Excellent, a great choice and some great music there. If I were to ask you for an honourable mention of any brass albums that might have been close to making the cut, were there any that stood out to you? Yes, there, there is one that comes to mind. Um, so when I was younger, um, we were given a lot of free CDs, like going to Star Lake and, you know, different band programs. And one of them was Music of Thanksgiving and Hope by the New York Staff Band. Um, so that has the Symphony of Thanksgiving, it has Tourist Fortissima, it has Hope by Dorothy Gates. Um, I love Dorothy Gates, her music is uh, very like visual, I find. So that's the one we would listen to on repeat in the car. It was just sort of in and we would just listen to it. So I hold it very dearly. So that, that's the one, Music of Thanksgiving and Hope, New York Staff Band. Fantastic. Another great album there. Well, Alexis, thank you so much for your album choices, but also thank you for joining us on Fully Scored. It's been a real pleasure to speak to you and to get to know a little bit more about your life and your work for the Salvation Army. So thank you so much for giving up your time. Thank you. My pleasure, Matthew. Great to see you. Thank you, Alexis, for your time and also your album choices. Both great music. Now... Not for the faint-hearted or for those of a nervous disposition. It's time for the world's most challenging brass band quiz on this podcast. Don't be alarmed, for it's Band Mastermind. 
Well, Brett, this brings us on to Band Mastermind. On a scale of 1 to 10, uh, how excited are you to sit in a Band Mastermind hot seat? Define excited. <laughs> oh, I'll have to get a dictionary. <laughs> oh, I, I, I'm oh. a 10, you know. We're all in. Excellent stuff. I like to hear it. So, Brett Tolcher, are you ready to play Band Mastermind? Go. Your time starts now. Which of these is a real march published in the general series? Never Say Die, Fight Onwards, or Bountiful Blessings? Bountiful Blessings. Incorrect, I'm afraid. On the 1973 ISB LP Brass Impact, what iconic Bearcroft march opens the B-side? Pass. Okay. Tragically, many members of the original Canadian staff band perished in the sinking of the Empress of Ireland in the St Lawrence River. Did this disaster happen before or after the sinking of the Titanic? The after? Correct. What is the name of the cornet solo that features the song One Life to Live? Pass. Okay, we'll move on. Who was a female vocalist who sang You'll Never Walk Alone with the ISB on the CD together? It's not Peggy Thomas, is it? It wasn't. It's a good guess. (laughs) (laughs) We'll move on quickly. Uh, What is the name of the most recently released New York staff band album? Oh, I don't know. Derek's going to kill me. I'm going to have to pass. What is uh, Trials and Tribulations? Oh, it's close. That's on it. We'll come back to the answer in a minute. Which Peter Graham piece was published first, Blazon or Renaissance? Renaissance? And with that, I'm afraid it's incorrect and your time is up. So I'll go back through the answers. Uh, You did join with John in getting one correct, which isn't a bad score for Van Mastermind. No, it is bad. It is bad. It's okay. (laughs) I have to say, it's absolutely average. (laughs) I'll go back through the answers so you can kick yourself under the table. So, I asked you, out of these three marches, which was a real march published in the general series? Uh, I said, Never Say Die, Fight Onwards or Bountiful Blessings. The correct answer was Never Say Die, published in 1889 by Richard Slater. I'm surprised you don't remember that. (laughs) (laughs) The iconic Bearcraft march that opens the B-side of the ISBLP Brass Impact is Temple 85. Okay. Uh, you got the answer correct about the uh, tragic sinking of the Empress of Ireland, which happened two years after the Titanic sank. The cornet solo that featured the song One Life to Live is Robert Redhead's Life Abundant. The female vocalist on the ISBCD together, who sang You'll Never Walk Alone, was Leslie Garrett. The most recent uh, New York staff band album is called Worship the King, hot off the press in the um, last couple of weeks. Yeah. Sorry, Derek. <laughs> and the first Peter Graham piece published out of Blazon and Renaissance was Blazon. You feeling a little bit more relaxed now that's over? I feel disappointed. Oh, we've all been there. <laughs> well, Brett, in all seriousness, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure and a privilege to speak to you. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you once again, Brett, and indeed for all of our guests who have tackled Band Mastermind so far. Now it's time for another challenge, but this time the challenge is for you. 
sparsely scored. If you're new to the podcast, first of all, thank you for joining. I hope you're enjoying your listen. And secondly, I'll explain what sparsely scored is all about. We've taken an eight-bar extract from a piece of Salvation Army music. In each episode, we're adding another part to the mix. The first person that sends us a direct message on any of our social media platforms correctly identifying the piece will be crowned the first ever sparsely scored winner and possibly gain the accompanying knighthood, but that's not in our hands. For this episode, we're adding second and bass trombone parts and we'll play you the excerpt twice. Here it is again. If you think you might know, then send us a direct message. We look forward to hearing from you. Now I'm afraid that's just about all we've got time for in this episode, but don't worry, we'll be back again next month with another Pod Chocker with Chat. If you can't wait, then you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter to keep up to date with the latest, or to give us any feedback. We always like to hear what you enjoy, or perhaps what you think that we could do better. A few thanks. Thank you to our brilliant guests, Brett, Paul and Alexis for your time, talents and of course good humour. Thank you to our producer Simon Gash for your services to podcasting. Also for editing and organising this whole episode. Much appreciated. Thanks to Wobplay for hosting this podcast and creating a handpicked playlist to complement it. Thank you to the musky scent only found in an old bookshop. That is the band nerds for your expertise with the bandmaster pipe trivia. And last, but by no means least, thank you, you, fully scored listener. We hope that joining us virtually has made your day better and not significantly worse. See you in the next episode. Goodbye and God bless. <laughs>